seated. As you do so, I invite you to join me in taking your copy of God's Word and turn with me back to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1. And we are coming back to our study of Nehemiah. As you turn there, I want to tell you a story as we get started this morning. Many of us are familiar with the name of John Calvin. He is a figure who looms large in our denominational history and in our theology. Uh, that's, and, and, and to the point that for those of us who subscribe to Reformed theology, the nickname for us are Calvinists because of Calvin's study and work in that field. Now, Calvinism is much bigger than what John Calvin studied and came up with, um, but we are known as Calvinists. Everybody needs a nickname, needs to be put in a pigeonhole, and so that's how we are put in as Calvinists. But as we look at his life, for a good portion of his ministry, he pastored in Geneva, Switzerland. He actually had two stints of pastoring there. His first stint ended because he was run out of town. Uh, The politicians ran him out, mainly due to political issues in Geneva. And so after three years, politicians and some people came back and they persuaded him to come back. I'm sorry, went 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 to Calvin and persuaded him to come back. His first Sunday back, he, he packed up his belongings, he moves back to, to Geneva. His first Sunday back in his church, back in his pulpit, he stands up and he begins to preach a sermon that follows the previous verses that he had preached three years before. So three years before, he preaches a sermon, they run him out that week, he comes back three years later, he picks right up where he left off. That's pretty amazing. And that's faithful expository preaching right there. Now, I understand I am no John Calvin. And I don't expect you to remember where we were in Nehemiah before we took a break. It hasn't been three years, but it's been two and a half months since we were in this book. As a matter of fact, the last time we were together in Nehemiah was on the Sunday before Thanksgiving. Think about that, a good bit has happened since then. Thanksgiving, Advent, Christmas, a new year, other things happening in your life. So all of us, including myself, probably need a review before we move further into this book. Because if you're like me, you can hardly remember last Sunday, much less two and a half months ago. So our, our goal this morning is to review the four chapters that we covered already back in the fall. Now, we're not going to re-preach all those sermons, and we're not going to be able to get to a lot of details, but we're going to try to get enough of a review so we can uh, continue to move onward in Nehemiah and not feel like we are lost along the way. And so this morning, we will look at Nehemiah, uh, begin with Nehemiah 1, verses 1 through 5, but we'll kind of go throughout the four chapters as well. So that being said, let me pray for us and we will come together before God's word. Father, we thank you that uh, we have your word. Your word is from you. It is a blessed word. It is a wonderful word. And we need you with us for us to understand it. We may be smart. We may have uh, degrees and advanced degrees. And we may be very smart in our field. But apart from the spirit, uh, we can know nothing of your word. So we pray that your spirit be here with us this morning to humble us, to help us understand that we are indeed hearing from you, and that you are speaking into our lives, into our minds, into our hearts. 
may we listen to your word. May we be faithful to listen to how the Spirit applies this to our lives. And may we be faithful to live it out. As Scripture tells us, we're not just to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Help us to be both hearers and doers this morning. We praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. If you'll join me now in standing for the reading of God's word. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, now happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, the Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. We find that every good story has different elements and layers to it. I believe Nehemiah is a good story. It's a good story first because it's biblical, it's from God, it points us to God. But it's also a good story because it has different elements and layers to it. We see it in kind of the broad context of Nehemiah and that uh, we look at the Bible, we see Ezra comes before it and Nehemiah and Ezra tell the same, they, they tell the same story. And they are actually one book back, or they were one book in the Hebrew Bible because they are, some, they are telling the same story, but they're telling it from a different perspective. Ezra was a priest. And so as he talks about this situation, the story, he's telling it from that very particular uh, angle of a priest. Nehemiah was not a priest. He was a government official high up in the ranks. So his perspective is going to be different from Ezra. They're looking at the same story. They're in a sense kind of in, that, they're kind of in, a sense in the same story. But Nehemiah's going to have a different angle because he's in the government. And Ezra is in the ministry. And we find that the background of the story comes from exile. The Israelites have been exiled by God from the promised land. For generations, God's people reveled in sin and rebellion and disobedience. And sometimes along the way, they would repent and they would get back on the straight and narrow for some time. But almost inevitably, they would go right back to that same pattern of sinning and rebelling and disobeying. And all along the way, God would send prophets to his people, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, to warn them of what would happen if they kept on sinning and rebelling and disobeying. Sometimes God's people would listen for a little bit. Oftentimes they would not. And they kept on sinning and rebelling and disobeying. And so finally, all the prophetic warnings come true. Because God's people would not truly repent and turn from their sins, God now turns them and their land over to their enemies. And the Israelites are now exiled away from their home, from their homeland, for several generations. Everything they had ever known was left behind. The land, 
The land itself that God had led them to after delivering them from Egypt and from slavery was no longer theirs. It was now occupied by their enemies. It's now occupied by pagans. Their temple, where they would go to to worship, where they go to offer sacrifices, that temple now lies in ruin. The very place where God's presence was in the Holy of Holies is now a pile of rubble. Family was separated from family. Their faith in God suffered. There were more tears than smiles. There were more sorrow than joy. Their story is a story of being in exile because the consequences of their own actions. So that's one layer of this story. Another layer we get from Ezra. God also called him to go back to the promised land with some of the people. He does about 13 to 15 years before Nehemiah. And Ezra's call was spiritual. It's called to go back and rebuild the temple for worship, but also to enact religious reforms that were needed for the spiritual well-being of the people. So part of the layer of Nehemiah's story is his background of how faith had suffered during the exile. Even though the people have been disobedient for generations, you take them away from their temple, you take them away from their liturgy, you put them amongst this pagan religion, and faith suffered. So in the background of Nehemiah working is the temple is being repaired. Reforms are taking place because it needed to take place. All this was needed for the spiritual well-being of God's people. And then there's the layer we find here this morning with Nehemiah when he receives these visitors from Jerusalem and they tell him about the poor condition of the wall. And Nehemiah, as a government official, understands the the political implications of this. The wall was there to keep the enemies, uh, to protect them from enemies in the region. It was there to keep their their kingdom intact. And his heart is shattered because he knows that for all the work that's put into uh, rebuilding the temple and reforming religious duties, it can all fall to naught because there's no wall to protect the place. So there's this layer of Nehemiah's love of place. That this was the promised land. This was God's land. This was God's holy city. This was God's temple. And Nehemiah loved it. He loved it so much that his heart was broken when he heard about the disrepair. It was still in. I'm currently reading through a book by Andrew Peterson called God in the Garden. And part of what he talks about in the book is how Christians are called to love where God has planted them. Part of our call as Christians is to have a love of the people and place where we live, even have a love of nature around them, to notice the the trees and the flowers and the bushes around them. As Christians, we are called to bloom where God has planted us. And we see that with Nehemiah, but his has an interesting angle to it. He's not talking about love of where he is now. He's talking about love of where he was from. But Nehemiah is too young to have been from Jerusalem. He was born in exile. So he loves the place that he'd heard stories of that have been described to him. Memories of other people. But because he's a faithful Israelite, he loves Jerusalem. He loves the hills. He loves the people. He loves the temple. 
And so we see his love for this place come out in this story. So all those layers we find in Nehemiah's story, but the, the central layer to it all is the story of God's sovereignty and how God works his sovereignty through the faithfulness of Nehemiah. As we read through the story of Nehemiah, we find the fingerprints of God's sovereignty all over it. It's a story that has the fingerprints of a God who is in control. Even the background of the story, when the people were exiled, this was under God's sovereignty. When the people were exiled, this wasn't God's last resort to try and corral these people. We don't find that God's in heaven and he's pacing his living room like a worried parent. And he's stressing over why his people would not listen to him and obey him. And all of us who are parents have, have been in that situation. We've looked at our children and we go, I want to strangle you because you will not listen to me. And you keep on going after things that are harmful to you. What is wrong with you? If those things don't kill you, I probably will. We know what it's like to worry about the disobedience and rebellion of our children. But that's not the picture we have of God. We don't find him pacing the living room and going, maybe, maybe if I send them into exile, then maybe they will listen to me. Maybe they will obey. Because when we talk about God's sovereignty, part of what we're talking about is the issue of time. That God's not bound by time like we are. Time for us is, is linear. It's like a line, a straight line. And wherever we are on the line, we can look backwards. We, we can look into the past and, and know what has happened. Right, we can tell you what happened yesterday. And if our mind's good, we can tell you what happened two days ago, three days ago. Maybe we can tell you about five years ago, ten years ago. Right, we, can, we can see into the past. But we can't look into the future and know what's going to happen. It's linear. Time is linear for us. Now we can take some good guesses that have some certainty to it. We're, we're pretty sure that the sun will set tonight and, and will rise tomorrow. Pretty sure the Super Bowl will be played tonight. And millions and millions of people will be tuning in. Along with the young adults Bible study and the youth groups. Shameless plugs for our ministry tonight. We're certain that come April 15th, the government's going to want your taxes. There are things we can be rather certain about, but we cannot be 100% certain about anything in the future because time is linear. We cannot see into the future. Our current moment is the furthest into the future we can be. And the more you start thinking about that, the more it can kind of boggle your mind. Time is linear for us, but it's not linear for God. He's creator of time. He's over all of time. He can see all of time in one look, past, present, and future. So when we look at the story of Nehemiah, we see that God's not surprised by the Israelites' disobedience. He knew what they were going to do before they did. Before they knew what they were going to do. So it was in God's sovereignty that he exiled them, exiled them when he did. It was in his sovereignty that he delivered them again when he did. This is all part of his sovereign, gracious plan for his people. So when we get to the actual story of Nehemiah, we find that Nehemiah being in the position of influence with the king, that's not by chance. That, that's, that's part of God's sovereignty. 
that Nehemiah happened to receive these certain visitors at that time, part of God's sovereignty. That these certain visitors had this certain news for Nehemiah at that time, all part of God's sovereignty. This isn't by chance. This isn't luck. This isn't random chaos coming together for good. This is God's sovereignty at work. So all throughout the story, we find the fingerprints of God's sovereignty. He's always in control. He's always working towards his good and glory. That God is always in control. And Nehemiah's story reminds us we have that same comfort in our lives, in our own lives. The God who is sovereign in Nehemiah in his life is the God who is sovereign in our lives. God is still in control. God is still fulfilling Romans 8.28. We know that for all things, uh, all things work together for good for those who are called according to God's purpose. That's still true because God is still sovereign. As we mentioned before, part of our theological identity with people is John Calvin, but we are Reformed Presbyterians and we find that theological identity spelled out for us in our standards. And Shorter Catechism says this, asks this, what are God's works of providence? And, and providence means, how does God work out his sovereignty? God and his being is sovereign, and his works of providence are how he works out his sovereignty. So God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And that's, to me, that's a, that's a good definition. But it's kind of wooden. So I want us to go to the Heidelberg Catechism, which is also part of our theological identity. And I want to read these two questions and answers for you. And I want you to hear that the warmth of the comfort of this doctrine. What do you understand by the providence of God? The almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them, that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Next question. How does the knowledge of God's providence help us? We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing in creation will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in God's hand that without his will they can neither move nor be moved. And that's the comfort we have. As Thomas prayed earlier, as he told the children, we serve a happy God. We can often fall into thinking that he's this this ornery old grandfather up there who's just waiting to whack the snot out of us whenever we mess up. But the God who is sovereign and works through providence is the God who so loves you that he gave his only begotten son. The God who so loves you that he has, he has given you an eternity with him. A God who so loves you did not allow you to go to hell. But had his own son experience the full wrath of hell on the cross, so you never would.
And that's the comfort of God's sovereignty in our lives. Even when things go bad, there's a good God at work. Even when things are painful, there's a good God at work. Even when things are wonderful, there's a good God at work. And that's the comfort of God's sovereignty. And this comfort of sovereignty should lead us to prayerfulness. And that's what we see with Nehemiah, his prayerfulness. If you had to describe Nehemiah in a very brief terms, you would, you would have to say he was prayerful. So first thing we're told about Nehemiah is that we're, we're told his lineage, uh, we're told that he receives visitors and receives bad news. The first thing he does is he goes and he prays. One of my, one of my favorite quotes on prayer comes from an old Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. If the distance makes no difference, he is praying for me. And what comfort we have in prayer. When we go to pray, we already know that Christ is praying for us. The sovereign son of God, who knows all, is already praying for us. And that should bring us great comfort and encouragement in prayer. And I would say Nehemiah found that same comfort and encouragement in prayer because he knew the sovereign God. And he was looking forward to the sovereign Messiah coming for him. Because as he heard the bad news of the condition of the wall, he immediately goes to prayer. He doesn't go in the next room and gets other officials together and they begin gossiping about it. Why hasn't Ezra done anything about that wall? Ezra should know better. They don't get to gossiping. He doesn't, you know, start kicking things over and pitching a fit, moaning and groaning about it. And I may feel that kick later on. I should have stretched before I kick that much. He doesn't get out his tablet and puts together a list of materials to get to work. Now the first thing Nehemiah did is he prayed. Matter of fact, what we see is the first thing he did, it's the thing he did most, it's the thing he did most often. He prayed. I believe I've, I've shared this with you all before, and I'm a, I'm a champ at repeating stories, so thank you for bearing with that. But uh, when Beth and I were living in McConnell's and I was working for Olivet Presbyterian Church, when the weather was nice, we would like to take a ride up Highway 321 to York, South Carolina, and park downtown. And we would walk around the downtown and look at the historic houses that were around the downtown and there was one house we uh, saw that, in particular that caught our eye. Uh, matter of fact, it's right around the corner from New York ARP Church. And one day we saw it was up for sale. And this was back at the beginning where you could go online and look at houses that were up for sale. So we went, we went back home, we pulled the realtor, we went to the website, and we wanted to see what it looked like on the inside. On the description, it said that it had a prayer room. And the pictures of it was a, a little small room. I mean, Maybe five by five, eight by eight, a little small room that had a desk and a chair. So I looked it up. What's a prayer room? Well, it turns out it's common in architecture in 17th, 18th, and 19th century, especially in the South, that homes would be built, the prayer room. It's where you would go to read your Bible and to pray. It's this little room you go in, shut the door, shut the rest of the house away from you. And you could spend time with the Lord. And I was like, what, what a wonderful 
custom that was. And I don't know why we lost it. I, I wish we hadn't. Because I'd like to think if we hadn't, maybe things would be a little bit different now. Maybe if we were convicted to have prayer rooms in our house, where we could deliberately go away and read our Bibles and pray, maybe things would be different now. We can still, of course, do that, but the idea of having a room is wonderful. That's what we see with Nehemiah. Nehemiah heard bad news. He knew something needed to be done, and the first thing that needed to be done was prayer. He went to his prayer room and he prayed. Before he did anything else, Nehemiah prayed. He prayed first, he prayed most, he prayed often, he persisted in prayer. And then we're given the substance of Nehemiah's prayer at the end of chapter 1. Maybe a summary of his prayers, maybe the prayer he, he prayed right before he went to go see the king. But we find that he prayed a biblical prayer, which makes sense because it's in the Bible. But it's a, it's a prayer that's patterned upon other biblical prayers, and it's a prayer that begins by telling God about God. It begins with adoration. God, this is who you are. Here's the wonderful attributes of who you are. Here's the wonderful things you've done. Oh God, here is who you are. And we don't, Nehemiah doesn't pray that way to feed God's ego. He prays that way because it helps Nehemiah to put everything into perspective. He prays that way so he's reminded that he is going before God. This is who he is. I would like to think that if I were called to go to the White House before they entered me into the Oval Office, I'd have to tell myself, James, you're talking to the President of the United States. Don't tell him your bad jokes. So when we come to prayer, it's, it's good to be re- reminded that who we're praying to. That it's God, who is the Lord, the creator, maker, and keeper of the covenant. And in praying this way, Nehemiah's problems probably seem to take on smaller dimensions. What's a torn down wall compared to the majesty of God? He's the faithful covenantal God. What's a torn down wall compared to what the covenantal God can do? And so when we pray this way, we pray beginning with a focus on who God is and it puts everything into focus. It helps us see the forest from the trees. Instead of getting bogged down on this one thing, we pray in this way, we see that God is so much bigger and greater than that problem. And if he can part the Red Sea, if he can stop the sun in the sky, if he can raise Jesus from the tomb, then surely he can handle my prayer. So like Nehemiah, our walk with God is meant to be saturated with praying. We are to pray first, most and often we are to persist and we are to pray with an eye on God, not on what he will do for us, but on who he is. And whenever, however he chooses to answer our prayers, it will be the most wonderful answer. Because it's knowing who God is that puts everything else into focus. And that moves us into chapters 2 through 4, where we see that Nehemiah's action proceeds from prayer. He has prayed. He's prayed often, and now he feels compelled to go to work. So 
So he goes to the king. There's a number of issues, background there, but the king knows him. He's the cupbearer to the king, which means he tastes all the wine and food before it comes to the king. So if it's poison, Nehemiah will die and not the king. So the king has literally put his life in Nehemiah's hands. He trusts Nehemiah. He knows Nehemiah is a good man. He's a faithful man. They don't worship the same God, but he trusts Nehemiah. So Nehemiah goes to him and carefully gives him his request to reconstruct, to go to Jerusalem to reconstruct the wall. And God's sovereignty is again at work. He has prepared Nehemiah for this point. He has prepared the king for this point. And the king says, go Nehemiah and take whatever you need. So he goes. And when he gets there, he gets a good idea of what needs to be done. We see what a wise Christian leader is to do. He goes around and he looks at the extent of the problem. And then he goes out and he gathers all the leaders and he makes it a group project. He doesn't come in there with all the pomp and circumstance of a higher official that says, y'all got a problem and y'all got to fix it. But he comes to him and he says, I've been around, I've looked. And here's where the wall is damaged and here's how I think we can fix it. He gets everybody on board and he has a plan that has more answers than questions. And as we go further in chapter 4, we find that there's opposition to this work. And that's not, should be surprising. Satan will always be opposed to the work of God. If we are doing God's work, then we can expect evil opposition. But we don't stop doing the work because when we stop, then Satan wins. So in the story of Nehemiah, we find that even with the threat of invasion and attacks, the people still work on the wall. It just looks a little bit different. If we were to go during that time, we would see them going around wheelbarrows and, and shovels and donkeys and trowels, and we'd see them working on the wall, but we would also see people positioned all along the way with swords and horns, ready to give an alert if the enemy was coming and ready to defend. They trust in God, they trust in his work and provision, so they keep on working. It's a good reminder to us that we do our best work when we keep our, God, our eyes on God instead of the opposition. Satan will oppose any godly work. And it's easy to fall to. It's easy to, to fall and allow Satan and his minions uh, to, 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 to allow us or to get us to not do the work. But as we look and trust in God, as we look to and trust in God and we keep our eyes on him and the work he's called us to, God will bless us and he will bless that work. And that brings us to chapter 5 which we will look at next week. So as we wrap up this morning, I want us to keep this one thing in mind. Nehemiah is a good story. It's a good story with the main thrust of God's sovereignty and how God works in his sovereignty through the faithfulness of Nehemiah. But the story is also a story about restoration. The physical restoring of the temple in Ezra, the physical restoration of the wall in Nehemiah. And this story reminds us of the work of restoration that God does through Christ in our lives. As we talked about for a couple weeks in our sermons on grace, we are all sinful wrecks. We have all, we're all born dead in our sins and trespasses. We've all rebelled against God. We've all been like the Israelites 
who went to exile. But God, in his graciousness, has come to restore us. God, in his gracious sovereignty, will restore us. Because the Father sent the Son to do that very work for us. And the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit to apply that work for us. Jesus came to die for our sins so that that work of restoration could begin. That the wrecked and fallen stones of our soul could start to be rebuilt one brick and one stone at a time by the Spirit of Christ. Grace tells us that our souls are wrecked. But through faith in Jesus Christ and repentance of sins, he begins to restore us in our created image, in the image of God. But there's also, there can also be a physical aspect to our spiritual restoration. David tells us this in Psalm 32. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Scripture teaches us that unrepentant sin can have a physical effect on us. Now, do not misunderstand that and think that, that if, if you get sick, if you get COVID or cancer or, or something else, that this is God punishing you for unrepentant sin. No, we still, we live in a fallen world. There's sickness around. You can still get the Rona. You can still get these other things. But sin, unrepentant sin, can have a physical effect on us and can sap the beauty of Christ from our lives. I'm sure there are those you can look to and you can see how they physically show the burden of unrepentant sin in their lives. They just look miserable. They have a miserable countenance. They act miserable. They delight in evil. Their shoulders, their their very posture may show that they are under the burden of living for Satan. And when we come to Christ for forgiveness, that burden is taken away from our soul and from our lives. And John Bunyan, in his book, The Pilgrim's Progress, describes this so beautifully as Christian goes up to the cross, this heavy burden of sin that was on his back that was literally weighing him over. When he goes to the cross, that burden falls off and rolls down the the hill. And now Christian can stand up straight, his shoulders back and his back straight. He now stands as a Christian. No longer under that burden of unrepentant sin. The beauty of Christ and his grace can now shine through in us. And this morning, it may be that you need this restoration. Maybe you have never come to Christ for forgiveness, and if you're honest with yourself, you are just miserable. Maybe it's been a long time since you spent time with Jesus. Maybe there's a lot in your life that reeks of disobedience instead of faithfulness. Jesus will restore to you. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You come to Jesus in faith. You come to him in repentance. And he takes off that burden, and he gives you his. 
And his is eternal grace and mercy and love. And it will not bend you over. It will have you standing up straight in the light and the glory of the grace of Jesus Christ. So come to Jesus and be restored spiritually and maybe even physically. So you can know the beauty of this wisdom from Charles Spurgeon. Hold on to Jesus as a baby holds on to his mother with his arms around her neck. Trust him. Depend upon him. Rest in him and in him alone. That's the result of restoration. If we would just come and be restored by the master builder himself, Jesus Christ. Join me as we pray.